Welcome to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate all the support you're giving me by subscribing. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. It's free. It's on free on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Again, thank you so much. This week, we have two main feature cases. Neither was long enough to be a full feature, but both are extremely interesting. Please stay tuned after the main features for some historical newspaper clippings that are very similar to the first main feature about a man who shoots his cousin to death for basically nothing. Our first case is a cold case that was recently solved in 2016. It takes place in the great state of Michigan, my home state. Finally getting around to you. Love you, Detroit. Go Red Wings. You can turn it around. This takes place in Edwardsburg, Michigan, which isn't even close to Detroit. It's on the other side of the state, near Illinois, and just above Indiana. It's 1977, the year that Elvis died. On November 3, 1977, Raymond Robert Richmond, 18, found the body of his cousin Robert Stasiak at Stasiak's parents' home on May Street in Edwardsburg. He died of a single gunshot wound. The death of Stasiak, who was 25, was ruled a suicide at the time. Robert Stasiak was a U.S. Navy veteran and worked at a bakery with his cousin, Raymond Richmond, at the time of the shooting. He was a married father of a two-year-old daughter. For years, Stasiak's family, including his wife Kathy Hamburger and Stasiak's daughter Stephanie, believed Stasiak had killed himself. Stephanie had lived years blaming her mom for not getting help for her dad. Because she was only two when he died, she had little memory of him. The case was reopened in 2015. Police Chief Tim Kozel, his officers, and Southwestern Michigan students, Michigan College students were able to build a murder case. According to Cass County Prosecutor Victor Fitz, Richmond had told several family members that he had killed Stasiak. Stephanie Stasiak heard the confession when she was 17. Richmond also allegedly made verbal and written statements while he was in Oakland Hospital that he killed Stasiak. Stephanie and her mom went back to law enforcement year after year to try to get the case reopened. November 23, 2015, Stasiak's body was exhumed and an autopsy was performed. They determined the 22 caliber long rifle used to kill Stasiak was held at a greater distance than contact. A person could hold the 22 caliber long rifle and activate the trigger for self-inflicted gun wound. However, to do it at a greater distance than contact would require the gun to be held at an angle that does not correspond with the wound path. In May of 2016, police arrested Raymond Richmond, who was 57 and living in South Bend, Indiana at the time. He was extradited to Michigan to face charges, which could include murder and felony firearm, in the death of 25-year-old Robert Stasiak. It was alleged that Richmond was a drug dealer at the time and became upset when some of his marijuana was flushed down the toilet by his older cousin. The theory that Richmond used the rifle and shot Stasiak once in the chest. Richmond acknowledged that he did find the victim, but he said he was not in any way involved. Police, our prosecutor, Victor Fitt, said Richmond, who was 18 at the time, went back with malice in mind and shot Stasiak and left him for a day to bleed out. 
Richmond was arraigned on charges of homicide, open murder, and felony firearm. Judge Stacy Rentfro denied bond for Richmond. Defense attorney Paul Jonka had asked for a $50,000 bond, saying Richmond had been a South Bend resident for 30 years, is disabled, and has only a minor criminal record. Fitz argued against setting a bond in the case, noting that Richmond had a history of flight dating back to shortly after the 1977 shooting when he went to Georgia until things cooled off. Only after it was ruled a suicide did Richmond return to Michigan. Richmond had one conviction for possession of marijuana in Indiana and was also charged but not convicted of possession of cocaine and of assault both in Georgia. July 25, 2017, Richmond pled guilty to second-degree murder for the slaying of his cousin, Robert Stasiak, nearly four decades earlier. Judge Mark Herman accepted Richmond's plea deal, plea agreement, and sentenced him to serve a minimum of 12 years to a maximum of 18 years in prison. In court, the crime came out as following. November 2, 1977, Stasiak and Richmond were at Stasiak's parents' house in Edwardsburg. Stasiak, 25, did not like his then 18-year-old cousin's Richmond's use of marijuana. An altercation occurred between the cousins. Richmond eventually left the residence, but then later returned and continued the argument. Richmond then shot Stasiak in the right lung with a 22 caliber rifle and left the scene of the crime. Prosecutor Victor Fitz said he pulled the trigger and murdered his cousin. This was no accident. He left his cousin to lay there dying, filling up his lung with blood. Defense attorney Paul Jonka spoke about Richmond's grief for the pain that he had caused. Jonka described Richmond's agony living with the knowledge of his cousin's murder. This misery fueled his drug and alcohol abuse and had been the cause of his hospitalization several times. He has not lived a wonderful life, Janka said. He has lived a horrific life. Richmond got up and addressed the court at his sentencing. My cousin meant the world to me, he said. I was stupid and careless, and I wish I could turn it around. I'm very sorry. There are no words to express how sorry I am. Despite Richmond's claim that the killing had been an accident, Judge Herman questioned why a remorseful person would not help someone who had just been shot. It's very hard for the court to believe this was truly an accident, Herman said. You said you grabbed a twenty-two caliber rifle and pointed it at him. He grabbed at it, and then the gun went off, and he was hit. You said you left and went to work. You didn't assist him or call for help. Stasiak's widow, Kathy Hamburger, also testified in the sentencing. I don't think he, meaning Richmond, has a clue or cares about the damage he has caused, she went on to say Robert Stasiak's parents were destroyed and died before they could see justice done. She said Richmond had no conscience. It was discovered that he had a picture of their daughter, Stephanie, on her third birthday. Also discovered was a picture Richmond had in his home of Stasiak's tombstone. On the back of the picture, he had written, This is where I put Bobby. Our next story is a partially solved mystery. Another cold case that was solved, well, partially solved. You'll see what I mean. 
A man known as Joseph Newton Chandler III was found dead in Eastlake, Ohio in July 2002. He had committed suicide. He left no note. Police found $82,000 in his bank account and a 1998, no, I'm sorry, 1988 truck. Investigators tried to locate his family members, but what they found instead was that the man who committed suicide was not Joseph Chandler at all. This man had stolen the identity of an eight-year-old boy who was killed in an accident in Texas in 1945. So the man they found dead was someone else, and they had no idea who it was. The real Joseph Newton Chandler III was born in Buffalo, New York. Some reports say he was from Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's possible that he was born in New York and then moved with his family to Oklahoma. He was eight when he was killed in a traffic accident along with his parents in Texas on December 2nd, 1945. Police looked to determine who the man who killed himself was. They could not find any usable fingerprints in the apartment to pinpoint the man's true identity. Later, when the man's true identity was discovered, the lack of fingerprints in the apartment raised interesting questions. Some of the books in his apartment were even checked, and only smudges were found. In 2014, Eastlake Police sought U.S. Marshal Peter Elliott's help. His office and a team of researchers spent years investigating why the man stole a child's personal information and lived quietly under an assumed name until his death in 2002. They tracked down DNA from a Lake County hospital where in 2000, Chandler had surgery for colon cancer. With the help of the labs at Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office, Penn State, and the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, Elliot received a DNA profile. He sent the profile to national crime databases hoping to find a match for unsolved crimes or fugitive cases. There were no matches. In June 2016, he contacted Colleen Fitzpatrick and Margaret Press, forensic genealogists in California who created the DNA Doe Project and Identifiers International. They work with police departments to identify missing persons and solve crimes. They use the profile to search Y-DNA, which all males in a family share. This was similar to the type of searches used to help find the Golden State Killer. The initial searches gave them a surname of Nicholas or Nichols. They then searched four matches of potential first and second cousins to create a possible family tree. Early in the spring of 2018, they found a Nichols family in New Albany, Indiana. The family had four boys, three of whom had died. The other son had left the family years ago, but had not been reported dead. His name, Robert Nichols. Elliot found a son of Nichols, Phil, who was living in Cincinnati. Phil Nichols provided a DNA sample. It matched to the man who committed suicide in East Lake. Phil said he had no explanation for what his father had done. He stated that he was an unusual person. He was there, but he wasn't. He was like a stranger who lived in their house. He was with them, but he rarely interacted with them. Turns out, Robert Nichols was a war hero who spent the last 24 years of his life hiding as someone else. Robert Nichols grew up in New Albany, Indiana. He joined the Navy straight out of high school. 
On May 3rd, 1945, he served as a firefighter on the USS Aaron Ward when Japanese planes bombed it off the coast of Okinawa. Nichols, 18 at the time, was hit with shrapnel in his back and hip. He cared for the wounded and dying and pumped water out of the ship for hours before he realized that he had been wounded himself. He received the Purple Heart for his bravery. After the war, he returned to New Albany. It's reported he was so distraught and upset with what happened that he burned his Navy uniforms in the backyard. Nichols married Laverne Court in January of 1947. The couple had three sons, Phil, Charles, and David. Robert Nichols worked as a draftsman for General Electric. Nichols left his family in March of 1964. Phil, the oldest, was a teenager at the time. Marshall Elliott said Nichols told his wife, In due time, you'll know why. Phil Nichols said it didn't surprise him when his father left. He was a loner. This knowledge made Elliot even more convinced that there was something more to be discovered. He did something somewhere at some time that he wanted to hide from, he said. He was a decorated war veteran. He had a wife and three boys. He had a good life, and he walked away from it all. Elliot said Nichols moved around the country. He went to Dearborn, Michigan, where his parents, where he told his parents that he worked in the car industry. His sons visited him once, but he wouldn't let them stay with him. Instead, he put them up in a motel. In March of 1965, he wrote his parents that he moved to Northern California to the city of Richmond. He told them not to worry about him, and he was happy. Thirteen years later, in 1978, Nichols drove to Rapid City, South Dakota, and applied for a Social Security card under the name of Joseph Newton Chandler III. He used the personal information of the boy, including the child's birthday of March 11, 1937. Records show Joey, as he was known, did not have a Social Security number, which was common then, as the cards were given to adults. Nichols then moved to Cleveland using his name, Joseph Chandler. He went to work as a draftsman. He worked at two different places near the Cleveland area and at both places told co-workers that he feared someone was getting close. He never explained any further. In 1985, Nichols moved to Eastlake. He kept his life as private as possible. He didn't drink or smoke. He was antisocial and appeared uneasy in public. In photos of company office parties, it appeared as if he was forced into attending. Nichols died at the age of 75. At the scene of the tiny apartment where he died, there were no clues left of his prior life and the family he left behind, or why he hid his identity. Elliot believes there is more to the story. During his investigation, the marshal spoke with authorities in San Francisco to determine whether Nichols could have been the Zodiac Killer. That case, as I'm sure, as a true crime fan, you already know, has never been solved. Nichols can't be ruled out, Elliot said, as he spent unspecified amounts of time in Northern California during that period. Elliot has talked with detectives across the country to determine whether Nichols committed other unsolved crimes. He speaks daily with police chiefs and federal agents seeking to unravel why a man went to such great lengths to hide from his past. He wanted to die so no one would ever know how he lived.
So one of my biggest questions is, why did he say to his wife, in due time, you'll know why? He must have already committed some sort of crime or multiple crimes that he thought he was going to get caught for, or possibly something else he did that he thought would be discovered, and it was something that he just could not deal with. Or was there a possible mental disorder? He is described as antisocial, uneasy in public, and a loner, amongst other things. Now, those alone, that doesn't mean that he has any, had any serious mental disorder. But when you combine that with the links that he took to conceal his identity and the fact he seemed to nearly always be moving and always looking over his shoulder, well, it does seem that if he wasn't doing anything nefarious, then it is possible he had an undiagnosed mental disorder. I think we will learn more about the case in the future. I think there'll be something out there. If I find any updates on this case, I will definitely let you know in a future episode. Or if any of you find something out there, please update me. You can find the link to my website at the bottom of my show notes. And also, please stay tuned for the historical newspaper clippings that are similar to our first case in this episode. I picked a few choice ones for us starting in 1908 and ending in 1998. August 11th, 1908, in New York, shoots cousin dead in card game fight. In a fight following a card game early today, Bruna Cardia, 22 years old, shot and killed his cousin James Cardia at 13th Avenue and 38th Street, Brooklyn. Policeman O'Neill of the Parkville station was standing within 50 feet of where the shooting occurred, and he immediately arrested the slayer. Dr. Mathewson of the Norwegian Hospital said that Cardia had died instantly. Bruna Cardia, living at number 1276, 38th Street, and his cousin lived at number 1274. The card game took place in the home of Bruna, and the quarrel, which started there, was continued into the street. April 3rd, 1922, man shoots cousin at Barano Park, and this is in Pensacola, Florida. Houston Wells wounds his cousin David Wells following a drunken wrangle. In a shooting affray at Barano Park, 30 miles northwest of Pensacola yesterday afternoon, David Wells was shot twice with a shotgun, one load taking effect in the right arm and shoulder and the other striking him in the face. His right eye was put out. Sheriff Ellis and Deputy Graham hurried to the scene of the shooting and arrested Houston Wells, a cousin of the wounded man, and he is now in the county jail facing a charge of assault and attempted murder. From all accounts, both men had been drinking too freely of moonshine liquor. During a little friendly play, it is said that someone pushed David Wells down. A quarrel followed. He procured a single-barrel shotgun and threatened to shoot, but Houston took the gun away from him. There was a further argument, and Houston Wells is alleged to have shot his cousin in the shoulder. Following this, the man now in jail went to his house which was only a short distance away, and David got another gun, this time a repeating rifle, and is alleged to have gone to Houston's home and fired several shots into the house. It is then that he was shot the second time with a load of number six shot, 
the load taking effect in his face. Shot to kill. When Sheriff Ellis and Deputy Graham arrived, the rifle was laying inside the yard. The occupant of the house threatened to shoot anyone who attempted to remove it until they got there. However, when the officers arrived, he gave no trouble and was put under arrest. The victim was under the care of Dr. Watson of, of Molino, who advised that he was in no condition to be brought to jail. Although seriously wounded, it is not thought that the man's life is in danger. When a journal reporter asked or talked with Houston Wells at the jail, he said he was sorry he had to shoot his cousin, but that he had all intentions of shooting to kill. A rung shell is being held as evidence in the case. Evidently, it was overlooked when the would-be murderer loaded the gun. The rifle and shotgun and a pistol are also being kept as evidence. Okay, so the last one is not really that historical. It's from 1998, and they're not cousins. They're best friends, but I thought it was, I thought it was a good one. So, it takes place in Kentucky. June 23, 1998, R.J., Kentucky. When Larry Slusher asked his best friend to shoot a beer can off the top of his head, police say the friend obliged, but missed. Slusher, 47, was in critical condition Monday at the University of Tennessee Hospital in Knoxville with a gunshot wound to the head. His lifelong friend, Silas Caldwell, 47, was charged with felony assault. The one that got shot put the beer can up on the top of his head and told his buddy to shoot it off. He missed the can and hit his head, said Bell County Sheriff Harold Harbin. I don't think there were any arguments or anything because they were the best of friends. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please hit subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And also that helps me uh, get the podcast out there to more people. And I really do appreciate it. Uh, see my show notes for the website if you want anything. Uh, contact me with any feedback or any future episode up, um, suggestions. I'd love that. And until next time, take care. Thank you so much.